This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 71. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we're going to try something a little different in that I'm going to split today's episode into two sections covering two different subjects. First, we're going to cover some questions that I've received from listeners of the show and from students of my investing course so that you can benefit from the strategies and tactics too. And these are specifically going to be in the areas of investing, financial planning, and minimizing your fees and taxes. Next, we're going to bring on my guest, who is my resident mortgage and real estate expert and best-selling author, Sean Cooper, to talk about the real estate situation here in Canada so that you can stay informed on how real estate has been affected in these COVID times, whether you're an existing homeowner that is maybe concerned about the value of their home dropping due to COVID, or whether you are a renter looking to potentially buy in the future. We're going to cover questions like what you should know and how you can maximize your chances of getting approved for a mortgage. And whether you're an existing or future homeowner, there have been some mortgage rule changes that recently took place as well here in Canada. So you definitely want to be informed about those so that you can easily renew that mortgage when it's time or if you're looking to buy so that you can have a smooth, stress-free process in obtaining financing for your property instead of struggling and potentially missing out on your dream home due to financing issues because of these new mortgage rules that recently got put into place. Now, in case you don't actually get through this whole episode in one sitting and you actually need some mortgage help immediately, Sean has made himself available to all Build Wealth Canada listeners for free. So you can actually reach out to him through the special page that I set up for him to ask him any mortgage-related questions that you may have. So whether you're doing your due diligence to ensure that you get the best rate in terms on your mortgage when it comes up for renewal soon, or whether you're considering maybe breaking your mortgage to take advantage of these incredibly low interest rates that you're now able to get, or maybe you're just you know, looking to get a new mortgage and want to ensure you're getting the best rates and terms. So if any of that applies to you, you can actually go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash Sean. That's S-E-A-N. So buildwealthcanada.ca slash Sean. And there you can sign up for a free call with Sean so that he can answer any mortgage questions that you have, as well as provide you with his research on the best mortgages that he's been able to find in Canada. And this is a list that he's constantly updating to factor in the latest rates and the latest changes. And he can help give you any information you need to make sure that you are still able to get a mortgage after these latest mortgage rule changes that just recently took place here in Canada. Now, just to give you some quick background on Sean, in case you haven't heard my past episodes with him, he is basically the person that I would call if I personally needed a mortgage or was considering investing in real estate rentals. Again, I've basically known him for years at this point. He's the best-selling author of the book, Burn Your Mortgage. He's been on the show here multiple times. And like my wife and I, he was able to pay off his mortgage by his 30s. So he's definitely a wealth of knowledge when it comes to getting and optimizing your mortgage. So that link again to get in touch with Sean, get your questions answered, get the free mortgage checklist, and or get his research on the best mortgages to get any of that, you can just go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash Sean, so S-E-A-N, and enter your email. And that's it. 
All right, so that said, let's get into some listener and student questions. And let me know what you think of this format. Do you want me to do Q&As like this occasionally, or do you think I should just stick to interviews and or just do solo shows? If you sign up to my newsletter or the Kenyan Financial Summit, then you already have my email. So just hit reply to any email I might have sent you in the past, and I'll basically get that email from you directly. So yeah, definitely let me know what you think, because I can do more of these or less of these, or just keep doing a hybrid where sometimes it's Q&A, sometimes it's interviews, sometimes it's solo shows. Let me know, and uh, I'll be happy to modify the content for you. All right, so that said, let's get into the first question. So this one comes from Jeff, and I'm going to not include last names just because some people may want extra privacy, that kind of a thing. So I'm just going to use names here. And Jeff's question is, would you still recommend buying many of the ETFs mentioned in your guide and your course, as many of them are, if not close to all-time highs? Or is the overall price less significant as you look to a long-term view and take dividends into consideration? So there's actually several questions in this one sort of question that he asked in a sense. And so let's unpack that one by one. The first thing that I'll say is that I definitely do not try to speculate at all. I mean, it's something that nobody can do consistently. At least it's extremely, extremely rare. And so I just don't bother doing that at all. So whether it's an all-time high or not an all-time high, to me, that doesn't really matter. Back before our retirement days, all I would simply do is I would take a portion of every paycheck, or in our case, you know, my, our one salary was all towards investing. The other one was towards paying our day-to-day expenses. So I would just every month take that salary and invested in the markets, whether they were doing good or whether they were doing bad, it didn't matter. That's essentially what I would do. And then, I mean, at this point, I've interviewed a lot of experts. I've worked with a lot of really reputable people that really, really know know these things. And one key takeaway that I received from them, and there seems to be, this seems to definitely be a recurring theme, is that the time that you spend in the market is really what you should be focusing on. So investing as much as you can, as quickly as you can, that's the more so the strategy than trying to time the market and think, okay, it's going to drop next week or it's not going to drop or it's going to really increase next week. You know, just avoiding that sort of speculation altogether and instead looking at it from the angle of, okay, I've got some money to invest, so I'm going to invest it as soon as possible because the market does go up more than it goes down. And so the earlier I get into the market, the more I am able to ride those waves up. And so that is basically the practice that I personally follow and the practice that I would suggest for you. Now, keep in mind, when I say things like this, I am a purely index investor, okay? And so that is, I would argue, the best practice when it comes to just broad market index investing. If you feel you are one of those gifted few where you can speculate on individual stocks and beat the market and you know when to buy and you know when to sell and all of that, you know, then, you know, I wish you the best. And and that's great if you can actually predict these things and you are able to speculate successfully. And some people definitely can, sure. Um, I, however, am not one of those people. And I would argue very much so that the overwhelming majority of the population is not like that. A lot of us, for the most part, you know, we've got our jobs, we've got our families, we've got our friends. We are not stock investors working on Bay Street or Wall Street that do this day in, day out, have, you know, millions of dollars of resources at our disposal through our companies to get the finest research, you know, to beat the market, things of that nature. And so I would say for the overwhelming majority of people, the suggestion is just do broad market index investing. That's what I personally do. And then that scenario, yeah, you just invest consistently and you ride the waves up. And yes, you ride them down. But like I said, historically, the market has gone up more than it goes down. And so I do not try to time it per se. One additional thing that I will add is that 
when he asked this email, it sounds like he's just a bit nervous about investing because he's seeing all-time highs or he's just seeing things really recover rapidly from where things were at the bottom, you know, during COVID when things got really bad. And so he's, you know, thinking maybe I missed the bow, getting a little nervous, that kind of a thing. And if that's happening to you, then, I mean, that's fair. It's a valid human emotion. It's good to acknowledge that. And so my suggestion is that if you are nervous because you are seeing all-time highs, you know, whether you're listening to this episode now where we're still in COVID mode, or maybe you're listening to this episode five years from now, and who knows, maybe the market is just booming, it's doing amazing, who knows, regardless of what is happening and when you're listening to this episode, one strategy that you could do if you are getting anxiety about investing right away is you could always spread it out. And so this is referred to as dollar cost averaging. And so let's say you've got $5,000 to invest and you're nervous about just investing all of that in one day, you could instead say, okay, I'm going to take $1,000 and I'm going to invest that every single month for five months. You know, use whatever is going to essentially help you sleep at night so that you feel better, uh, so that you're not, you know, so that you don't put that 5000 in on day one and then you're checking the market every 10 minutes because you're terrified that the market is going to plummet all of a sudden and you're going to lose a bunch of money and who knows when it's going to recover again. Uh, so that is one strategy that you could do. Now, I will say that there have been some very reputable companies that have researched this to see, and this is another question that I get a lot, is if I have a big chunk of money, do you invest it all at once versus doing it gradually? In which scenario are you more likely to get better returns? What's sort of the best practice, so to speak? And Vanguard has done a study on this, which is a very reputable company. Others have as well. And essentially, the bottom line conclusion is that traditionally, if and there's no guarantees, keep in mind, but typically, if you looked at what happened in the past, you would have been better off just investing it all at once instead of waiting, instead of doing it gradually, little bit by little bit. So that is what the math says, is that more often than not, you would have come out ahead if you invested it all at once instead of spreading it out. So that's the math. And if you are able to do that and not get massive anxiety and you're able to go on with your life, then great. You know, that that's, I mean, personally, that's what I try to do is just put it out once instead of spreading it out. Because the other sort of negative of that too is that if you are spreading it out gradually, then in that time that you're waiting to invest, that money is just sitting there in cash. So you might be in a high interest savings account, which is you know great, at least you're earning something. But while it's sitting there, if you're waiting too long, then now you're missing out on dividends that get issued from those stocks, right? So you're actually missing out on income because you're sitting on the sidelines. And of course, like we said before, the market goes up more than it goes down. And therefore, you are you are also likely going to miss out on capital gains if they happen over that time. And those you know, traditionally, the stock market, if you do this you know broad market index, investing like what I do, it's going to massively outperform the interest that you're getting in a high interest savings account. So I'm all up for high interest savings account. They have their purpose and I use them myself. But if you are, if you have a portion of your money, let's say outside your emergency fund, outside your day-to-day spending that you're fully devoting to maximize growth, well, then you want that to be in the market. You don't want that sitting in a high interest savings account. All right, so that's just something that you really have to ask yourself and it's gonna be different from person to person, right? The math says one thing, but your psychology, your emotions, your your sort of predisposition, how you're wired, you know, all of that, that's gonna be different for every person. So while one person may feel totally comfortable, you know, maybe they just sold a rental property, like this, this happened to us, right? Where we sold our rental property years ago and in my case, you know, I was investing pretty, I, I did dollar cost averaging, but it was with pretty big chunks, you know, and I felt comfortable doing that. Another person might have, you know, 
$3,000 and might be nervous about investing $3,000 at once, whereas another person might have several hundred thousand dollars and they're okay investing it all at once. Right? So it's really going to depend from person to person. And you know what? And you may get unlucky, right? Even though the math says you're most likely to succeed, you're, you're most likely to grow it more if you do it all at once, you may just get unlucky. And it may just happen that the market does drop significantly right after you invest it. And it, you know, you, and then you would have actually been better off doing dollar cost averaging. So that does happen where, you know, there are periods of history where dollar cost averaging would have won, right? But when we're looking in totality in general, because we, we can't predict the future. So what are sort of what are your odds of of you know your portfolio growing more? Is it dollar cost averaging or is it doing all at once? And the answer is more often than not, you're going to be better off doing it all at once. But keep in mind, it's not ever guaranteed. You may just get unlucky. So you have to be willing to live with that and sleep at night. Okay, I think I <laughs> answered that question to the ground. So let's move on. The other part of the question that he asked was, do I still own the same ETFs that I mentioned in the investing course? And yes, I do. I still own all those same ETFs. And that's that's pretty much all there is to it. That's that's the beauty about being just a passive broad market index investor like what I do, uh, you know, and what a lot of these pros recommend, uh, because you don't have to constantly be reading financial statements of all these different companies and deciding, okay, is this company still good for my portfolio? Is this one now bad? Should I sell it? And then if I do, which one do I replace it with? You know, if you are an individual stock investor and you're basically stock picking yes in theory you could beat the market and some people do but most don't and it's a lot more work because you have to do, always be doing this analysis whereas in my case i mean i've been investing for many years now and i still own those same etfs that i owned way 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 back right and so that's one of the really nice things i would say about index investing is that you don't have to you don't have to always be thinking okay what's the best etf now you know that kind of thing is that one still valid you know there's a very very high chance that you pretty much once you've made the right decision once, that you can pretty much ride that for many, many years like we have. Now, he also mentioned dividends. And dividends I want to talk about briefly because in my case, you know, he was asking, do you consider dividends? And I don't really consider dividends. What I really care about is the total return and the total return being defined as dividends plus capital gains. So I don't really care about what dividends are. They could be big or small. What I really care about is at the end of the day, what's going to get me the highest growth. And whether it comes from capital gains or dividends, it doesn't so much matter. I just want that highest growth possible. And so with dividends, what is nice about it is that when you are actually living off your investments, like what my wife and I are doing right now, knowing how much you're going to get in dividends is nice. It is convenient because it helps with cash flow planning, right? Because when you have a regular job, you get these paychecks every, let's say, two weeks or every month, depending how you know, you're set up with your employer, and you have that money coming in, and so you don't really care so much about dividends at that point, you're not living off them, you're pretty much just taking them when they get issued by the companies and you're reinvesting them, right? That's all that you're doing. However, once you actually retire or semi-retire and you actually are living off your investments, like in our case, then it is actually nice to know because let's say I need X thousand dollars to buy groceries and and pay for our day-to-day expenses next month. Well, if I know that a certain pers- what amount of dividends are coming in next month when they get issued that that's just good to know from a cash flow printing perspective because if i need more money then i know okay i have this much coming in dividends and therefore i'm going to sell x in my equities to get the capital gains and to make up how much i need for that particular month right so it is very nice from that way kind of like a budget right where you've got your income coming in and you've got your expenses and so if you know how much just like you like to know how much you're going to earn from your job every every month that's nice to know in the same way it's nice to know how much you're going to get in dividends if you're actually using them and using them to pay the groceries that kind of a thing so that's really the 
only sort of extent to which I care about dividends. Because other than that, I really care about total return. And when I wasn't uh, retire, you know, pre-semi-retirement, pre-full retirement. Before all that, yeah, I didn't really care what the dividends were at all. We just wanted the return to be as high as possible. Now, I may definitely get some pushback on that answer because in Canada, there definitely are a lot of very devoted dividend investors, people that, you know, swear by them, they love their dividends. And don't get me wrong, I, I love having money just show up, just pretty much cash, show up in your brokerage account without having to actually work for it. It's, it's incredible. I love taking that. I, and I'm set up with passive, so I'll get these notifications from them saying, hey guys, hey Cornell, you've got you know, dividends in your account now. You can start spending it. And then I transfer that money out and I spend them. And I mean, it's, it's great. So I do, I do love dividends in that way. Don't get me wrong. My point here is that I don't revolve my strategy around dividends because from all the research I've seen and read and the many dozens of interviews I've done, the end conclusion is basically, as far as best practices when it comes to investing, is that you don't want to just solely focus on just dividends and getting dividends and trying to get the highest yield uh, because that can really much very much lead to disaster. And if you want, I can do another episode on that specifically, or I can bring on some other experts to share this view. Uh, I've had Ed Rempel on before he was at the financial summit as well. He's done some really good research and shown some really positive numbers of why you don't really need to care as much about dividends as you may think you do. So I basically subscribe to that school of thought where the dividends are not really relevant. And there's a lot of very highly respected people in the industry that share that view. Okay, let's move on to the next question. The next one was from Kate, and she said, I haven't noticed anything on socially responsible investing in your work. Have I missed it, or will you be putting anything out on it soon? So I actually haven't really covered it much in the podcast per se. I've, I've asked some guests about it, but it's not like I had some big episodes specifically on that or I haven't really published any major guides. If you joined the Canadian Financial Summit recently, I, I ran it as you probably know by now. In my talk, I actually covered socially responsible investing quite substantially. It's at CanadianFinancialSummit.com if, if this is your first time you know, listening to it. I've been uh, promoting it for a while, but basically in my talk, uh, I, I discuss a little bit about socially responsible investing and which strategies are the most compatible with it when it comes to do-it-yourself investing. And so one thing that I, so definitely I encourage you to check out the talk because I go really deep on that in there. But one thing that I will say sort of at a high level is that when it comes to socially responsible investing, the main thing to remember when it comes to that is that there's a very good chance that your definition of socially responsible investing is different than somebody else. Okay, so it's not like there is some golden social responsible standard that everybody agrees on, right? Because that's just not realistic, right? Humans have different values. We have different preferences. You know, some, they're based on many different things, some even on religion, right? Like there's, there's all kinds of different things. And so what, while one person might say it is super ethical for me to invest in medical companies because those are going to extend the lives of people, things of that nature, another person might say, well, no, we can't just blindly invest in medical companies, no matter what their returns are, because some of them have some unethical practices based on my definition of what is ethical and what is not, right? And so my point here is that, you know, there are some socially responsible things that I'm sure we all agree on, but there's also ones where guaranteed you're going to agree on one thing and someone else in Canada is going to disagree on it. And so you need to be really careful, I would say, with socially responsible investing if you want to do it properly and truly, uh, because one of the things I've noticed is that it's sort of this 
thing where that's become very popular, which is great. I mean, I'm glad that investors and, and companies are trying to encourage social responsible investing and people are thinking about that and caring about that instead of just pure profit all the time. So that's great. You know, but the problem is, and I see this with a lot of robo-advisors, is they've launched these socially responsible sort of plans where you can say, I only want to invest in socially responsible companies. Do that, please. So you give them your money, and they invest it for you, and they charge you, in my opinion, pretty high fees to do that. And then, but but then you're you can sort of pat yourself on the back, saying, "Hey, I invest in a social socially responsible fashion." Awesome. But have you actually looked into what they buy when they put you under in you know under these plans, right? And there's certain ETFs as well that are cons- that are called socially responsible ETFs. So I'm not just you know picking on robo advisors here. I'm just talking about any time that you're buying a basket of investments, whether it's through a robo advisor or whether it's an ETF that claims that it's socially responsible. If you really truly want to be socially responsible, that fits your definition. You have to actually go in there, see what companies they are holding, and then you have to decide whether you believe those companies are socially responsible or not. That's a very, very big consideration. And you'd be surprised. I've I've talked to people who, you know, were all about to invest in a particular ETF or with a particular robo-advisor, and then they actually looked behind the curtain to see, well, what are they actually investing in? And those places actually significant they, they invested in companies that they significantly disagree agreed with. They were thinking, how how could they possibly consider the company X to be a socially responsible company? Have you not seen this? Have you not seen this news story? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and so once again, their definition of socially responsible is probably different than yours. If it is the same, awesome. That's very convenient, right? However, if it's not, that's an issue, right? Uh, and so you really need to think about it. So the most optimum way around that, in my opinion, is if you are actually buying individual ETFs yourself. So you're not buying an all-in-one ETF. You're not buying. Uh, you're not going through a robo advisor. You're picking individual ETFs. Or if you really want to take it to the extreme, even just buying individual companies if you really want. To, although at that point you're stock picking now. So now you know we're getting into this whole active management thing. But if you're buying individual ETFs, then you actually have the power to pick and choose only the ETFs that hold the companies that you actually believe in are socially responsible. And so that is my recommendation. And so if anybody was gun-ho on socially responsible investing, I would say you really want to look into being a DIY investor. As convenient as it is to buy some all-in-one ETF or just to go with a robo-advisor and hand them your money and pay them the big fees, if you truly want what you invest in to be perfectly or almost as perfect as you can get, aligned with your values, then you probably want to be buying individual ETFs because you're now researching each one to make sure that they are complying with your values. So I think I'm starting to repeat myself, so I'm going to cut it off there, but I hope that answers it sufficiently. And I, I think that you know gives you some, some homework to look into because maybe you're in a portfolio right now with an advisor, whether it's a robo-advisor or someone else, and you're thinking it's they're investing exactly the way you want to invest from a social responsible perspective, but you may be very unpleasantly surprised. And so I do encourage you uh, to check that out because you, know, you don't want to lie to yourself about that, right? You're investing for positive change, ideally, right? You don't want to just say you're social responsible investing, pat yourself on the back and move on. You actually do want your you know, your choices to have some sort of meaning. So I'm going to leave it at that, but I hope that helps answer your question at least a little bit. And I think maybe that's a subject we can cover a bit more in another episode as well. All right, so I was actually going to answer a third question, but it's already been, you know, I'm looking at my timer here, oh, 
close to 20 minutes or so just answering two questions or so. So I think I'm going to cut off there because I do want to get into the interview. But like I said earlier, please let me know what you think of this Q&A type style. I think it's really valuable in the sense of instead of someone asking me a question and me replying it to them and it's just one person, instead I can really give a lot of thought to the question and answer it on the show. And then that way everybody gets to sort of hear it and learn from it and you can send me feedback. And then, you know, on a future episode, I could always, you know, go back to that question and say, hey, this person made a really good point here. Here's what I think. Let's maybe bring on another expert and see what they think, right? So we could really have some fun with it, I think. And it'll be, that way, you know, we can get some engagement and involvement. And that way I can make sure that I'm answering questions that you, the listeners actually care about. So, you know, I hope you like it, or maybe it's a total flop and you hate it, in which case, let me know anyway, and I will tweak accordingly, all right? So with that said, We're going to now get into the interview with Sean, but first, just a really quick word from our sponsor. Business is anything but usual these days, and entrepreneurs are looking for support that goes beyond traditional banking to successfully reopen and manage their business. Now, they can access all of RBC's practical tips, insights, money-saving offers, and solutions to support their e-commerce, digital payments, payroll management, employee wellness needs, and more all in one place. To learn more, check out the RBC Small Business Navigator Hub available at buildwealthcanada.ca slash hub. So just H-U-B. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash hub. All right, let's get into the interview. All right, Sean, welcome back to the show. Hi, Cornell. It's great to be with you again. So Sean, let's talk about COVID and the real estate market. Are we seeing increases in home values? And just how are things looking, whether you're looking to buy or sell? Is it a buyer's market, a seller's market? What are your what have you been seeing since you've got your ear pretty close to the ground on all this? Great question, Cornell. Well, when the first when the whole COVID situation first happened, it was pretty much a standstill in the real estate market. People really didn't know, Canadians really didn't know how this whole COVID situation was going to play out. So things were pretty slow and uh, like from mid-March and then April and May as well. But uh, things have really picked up since then with the economy reopening across uh, Canada and all the various provinces uh uh, with them kind of doing their own reopening plans. Uh, the real estate market has come back uh, roaring, which is uh, good news for everyone. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to share some statistics with you uh, that I heard. So as an example, in July, which is the most recent real estate uh, statistics from the Canadian Real Estate Association or CREA, they said that more Canadians' homes were sold in July than any other month in the past 40 years. So that's that's quite remarkable in, in my books. Uh, I mean, that, that that's that's in the last 40 years. Like that's that's definitely a big deal there. So um, they said that. There were 62,355 sales in July 2020, and uh, as mentioned, it marked the highest monthly sales figure on record with uh, data going back more than 40 years. So sales in July were up 30.5% compared to the same month a year ago and uh, up to 26% from June. So yeah, July was definitely a very strong uh, month there, and uh yeah, um, I'm sure you're curious to hear, Cornell, what you know, what some of the experts uh, think uh, led to that uh, 
strong uh, the strong sales figures. Were you, would you be interested to hear about that? For sure. I mean, my guess is pent up demand, people kind of buckling down when COVID hit, and then as soon as things start easing up. It sounds like people just started pouncing on the because I mean it's prime real estate season in terms of weather, right? Like it's harder to shop for houses in the winter. So I'm guessing my my hypothesis is weather and like insane pent up demand. Uh, what are <laughs> but what are the actual experts saying that that are closer to this? Yes, so uh, that, that that's a great assessment there, Cornell. It was definitely uh, it's definitely a number of factors at play there. Uh, first of all, we certainly did not have a normal spring real estate market because of the whole COVID situation. Like spring is typically the strongest real estate market of all, but uh, because of COVID, that market kind of uh, the pause button got hit on that market, and uh, it seems that activity like. The busy activity from spring actually got pushed into the summertime because usually with real estate, everyone's, uh, you know, everyone wants to, uh, like, there's a lot of activity in the spring market and then uh, Canadians typically take vacations in the summertime. But with COVID, it's not like you can travel to Europe or go outside of Canada to anywhere else uh, because of uh, the whole COVID situation. So people just weren't taking vacations as usual. And as mentioned, um, people really didn't want to be viewing properties uh, in like uh, uh, from like mid-March as well as the spring because uh, they just were kind of getting adjusted to the new normal as well as some people's employment situations were unfortunately affected by COVID. So uh, yeah, that it's definitely pent up demand from the spring market, uh, or as they said in the press release from uh, Korea here, they said um, it's, it's basically like a, they called it a snapback in activity that otherwise would have happened earlier this year. So uh, yeah, I definitely think it's uh, pent up demand. Some other factors at play here um, is uh, the newfound importance of home, and you know, with people working from home these days uh, and who knows how long that will last like imagine imagine if you're uh, renting somewhere and you're in like a, a cramped condo and now your uh, condos not only where you live it's become like um, where you entertain yourself and exercise and work as well and imagine that you're living there with more than one per, uh, person uh, definitely can feel a bit crammed so I certainly think that was uh Another factor there, uh, and uh, yeah, definitely a lack of daily commute for many, uh, a desire for more outdoor and personal space and uh, room for a home office, uh, um, as well as something else that we'll discuss later on. The record low mortgage rates, like uh, certainly, I've certainly spoken to many of clients that have decided to move up their real estate purchase because just because the mortgage rates are at levels that we've never seen uh, before. So all those factors there combined, I definitely think led to a very strong uh, uh, summer market, uh, which is kind of abnormal in Canada. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out going forward and whether we get uh, a second wave of COVID or not. But uh, yeah, it's if definitely the real estate market came uh, roaring back and it's a great time to be buying if you're financially okay and your job situation you don't anticipate it being uh affected by covid uh with the record low mortgage rates uh um you know it's definitely an attractive time to be buying right now if, if you're you know at, at that point in your life and financially ready to be doing so yeah it's an interesting animal right because with 
interest rates, when the interest rates are really low, that encourages people to go and buy houses. And then the housing prices start going up because now people are, you know, in bidding wars, things of that nature, because they basically have uh, cheap loans, essentially, right? Um, ver- and then there's also like, the, you know, the opposite of that when interest rates are high, mortgages are more expensive, but then so less people are buying houses. And so we're seeing, I guess, in, that, in those cases, more downward pressure on real estate pr- uh, prices, even though like they tend to still increase anyway, but, you know, they're not growing too crazy levels like some of the markets that we've been seeing. So yeah, it's interesting how that works where it's like, okay, we're saving money on mortgages, but now housing prices are also growing because of that. And so now you're dealing with higher housing prices, but lower mortgage, that kind of a thing. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah. I mean, I kind of see it as a bit of a wash. Like I I certainly think I have heard from some clients that they've decided to move up their purchase just because of the uh, record low mortgage rates. Uh, I certainly think that should be, you know, I certainly think that uh, can be a factor in your decision to buy a property or or, or not. But, uh, you know, other things like your employment situation and if you're at a good place in your life uh, where it makes sense to uh, buy a property as opposed to renting um, and, you know, your finances being in order. I definitely think those are important, like very important factors as well. So it's not just, you know, I don't think it should be just a simple decision about, oh, you know, mortgage rates are super low. Let's rush out and buy a property. It definitely needs to be a well thought out uh, decision. And, uh, you know, that's when it makes sense to kind of speak with everyone in, in your family and make sure that they're on board and speak with a, a professional as, uh, as well. Um, um, you know, realtor, mortgage broker, just kind of, uh, um, uh, lay out everything out and uh, just make sure, uh, you know, it's good to have, sometimes have a sounding board and just make sure that um, um, your plan makes sense and all that. So, yeah, I definitely think uh, it's it's uh, what you said is all true there, but um, uh, definitely some other things to consider, that's for sure, before jumping into the market. Mm-hmm. What I found really interesting, too, is I remember as we were going through COVID, you know, the, the first sort of initial big hit, there was so much speculation happening in terms of the real estate market where, you turn on the financial media and there would be you know these people talking about how all oh, the real estate market is absolutely going to tank because people are losing their jobs because of covid and so they're not going to have the money to basically pay for people won't have enough money to pay their mortgages they definitely won't have enough money to buy new houses and so we're going to see this giant you know real estate market collapse you know because of covid and i remember seeing quite a few stories like that in the news and so it's very interesting that okay if several months go by and July occurs and we're seeing record numbers now because yes, a lot of people did lose their jobs, but not everyone did. Um, and then I guess as things start to open back up again, people maybe that got laid off are now getting hired again, perhaps. And now yeah, we're basically, we're not seeing this, you know, sky is falling thing with the real estate market, like some people predicted. Yeah, definitely. Just to put things into perspective, I don't think we can expect uh, record numbers like this uh, going forward. I definitely think uh, the real estate market will uh, stabilize. This was just kind of like pent up demand, as as you uh, the term that you used earlier. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think uh, necessarily like buying a property. Uh, you should do it based on what experts are saying or, or what necessarily is going on in, in the market at. at the moment i mean i a great quote from uh like uh, somebody who inspired me to like pay off my mortgage super quickly uh scott mcgillivray from uh, hgtv's income property a great quote from him is that uh it's not about timing the market it's about time in the market and uh yeah it's similar to buying investments like as you know cornell humans aren't the best at uh 
timing, uh, like buying investments. Like people want to buy an investment when it's on sale and then sell it when it's at its peak. But the thing is that doesn't happen a lot of the times because, uh, you know, humans have emotions and all that. So as mentioned previously, I mean, um, you know, low mortgage rates are definitely an attractive reason to get in the market, but it has to make sense for your overall financial picture to be uh, buying a property. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be overly concerned with what the experts are saying. Like when I bought my house back in August 2012, which was quite a while ago, like these experts were saying, oh, there's a huge bubble. The Toronto real estate market is going to crash. I mean, you know, markets are different all across Canada, but we're always hearing that out in the media. And then look at that eight years later, and there hasn't been some huge correction. If I had to listen to the experts, I would just sat on the sidelines and, uh, you know, watched home prices go up and I wouldn't have even gotten into the market and it would have been disappointed. So I would just say, you know, try to definitely you can listen to the experts, but just try to take what they say with a a grain of of salt. And, uh, you know, when it makes sense for you and your financial lives, like, uh, then it can make sense to get into the market. But yeah, um, you know, just realize that some of these experts have been wrong year after year. And uh, I just think um, it's it's a decision that you should make uh, personally for yourself and, and not, you know, not listen to the experts too much. That's at least my two cents on the matter. For sure. And I like your quote uh, about the how it's about time in the market and not timing the market. And yeah, I've heard that quote as well from others, specifically in the investing field and index investing, what I do. Uh, and, and yeah, I couldn't agree more. What, what's interesting, I find, is that in reality, everybody knows that, okay, you want to you know buy low, sell high, right? That's, that's you know, investing 101, right? But the problem is, is that people get confidence to buy when the markets are doing really, really well. You know, like when in 2019, when we're seeing 20% plus returns, that's when we have, you know, the confidence to buy, right? Uh, versus you need to have that confidence to also, you know, to also buy when things are at the bottom so that you can ride that wave back up, right? So it's interesting as everybody knows that buy low, sell high thing, but the reality is that you need to actually become comfortable buying things when they are low and not only when everyone else is buying it and things are, you know, reaching record highs left, right, and center. So I think that's a really good takeaway, whether you're a real estate investor or whether you are you know, passive index investor like myself. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the July numbers and how those were these record numbers. What about some of the other months? We're recording this right now for everybody listening, September 15th, 2020. Um, so how have things looked since July? Is it still, I mean, obviously there was all that pent up demand for July, but are things looking relatively stable at this point? How are you finding things? Is it like a buyer's market, seller's market? It sounds like July was definitely a seller's market because of all the pent up demand. Uh, yeah. Can you maybe talk about that a bit? Sure, definitely. Well, uh, Korea hasn't come out with any other numbers uh, since then. I I did check their website uh, this morning and uh, didn't see any more recent numbers. I would expect them to be coming out with the August numbers in the coming days. But uh, yeah, I know this is a uh, national show. um, uh, So I mean, I don't know every single market in Canada. But what I can say is that, uh, like, the Toronto real estate market is an example. The numbers have continued to be uh, strong in August. So it will be interesting to see like the Korea um, statistics for August and just to see how the real estate uh, market plays out in the coming months. I mean, I know with the mortgage deferrals uh, for a lot of Canadians, uh, that uh, deferral period is uh, ending soon. So it'll be interesting to see if these Canadians are able to land on their feet and 
figure out a way to make their mortgage payments. There was some doom and gloom out there about, uh, you know, how, how are Canadians going to pay their mortgages at once the six-month deferral period ends. But I've seen some promising statistics out there that makes me think that there's not going to be a huge correction or anything like that. It seems like the vast majority of Canadians have figured things out financially and perhaps the banks will kind of do some, uh, I guess, uh, one-off deferrals for some of the uh uh, people who are still affected by COVID, but I don't like based on what I've been hearing. I, I, I don't expect like a huge correction or anything like that. So um, going forward, I expect the numbers to be strong, but certainly not at that record level that we saw in, in July there. But yeah, I'll, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things play out in the uh, fall. Um, I, you know, I don't expect a huge correction or anything like that. I just think uh, I just expect things to more like normalize, uh, uh, you know, certainly provinces like Alberta that has been hard hit by not only like the resource sector as well as COVID. Like I'm, you know, I, I would be, uh, I would be surprised to see their numbers going up a, a ton there. Like that mark, that province has been um, pretty hard hit, but I would think in Ontario and uh, BC things would continue to, um, you know, be strong. I wouldn't expect record numbers like uh, that, but, uh, you know, any provinces that have been hit by the resource sector, like um, Alberta and Saskatchewan and uh, some of the maritime provinces, uh, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see how things go uh, for the rest of the year there. But yeah, I'd be kind of cautious with those places just because uh, they're so um, you know, they've been affected by COVID as well as the resource market. You know, people aren't driving vehicles as much. So uh, the prices of oil, uh, the whole demand for that across the world is, is down. So, um, yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm seeing at this uh, point in time. I'm glad you mentioned the point about looking at local versus just national. I remember I, I used to be a, a landlord, a real estate investor back in the day. And I remember that was one of the best pieces of advice that I got from some of the different, you know, experts that I studied before going into that Um, because for sure you know a lot of times we look on the news and we see these stats which are for all of Canada or or for the whole province even right and it's tempting to make certain conclusions off of that and assume that they apply to your local market so your actual city or town that you live in Um, but it, it can vary so drastically what's happening at the national level versus the local level I mean to take an extreme example you know when there are certain cities or towns in Canada where they are maybe reliant, that whole town's employment is, let's say, reliant on maybe one or two employers and you know companies that have their factories there or whatever the case may be. And so if one of them closes down, you know we see this massive collapse in real estate values potentially in that specific town or city, even though you know Toronto prices may be hitting record highs, but in that other city, you know somewhere in Canada, they may be plummeting because that employer just decided to, I don't know, outsource its operations to China or whatever the case may be maybe, right? So uh, this is a really, I think, valuable lesson to always remember to look at your actual local numbers, because you may be outgrowing the rest of Canada's by a long shot, or you may actually be not growing as much as Canada on average because of certain variables that that impact the, the prices of real estate. So yeah, I definitely every, encourage everybody to you know not just paint everything with a broad you know, those broad brush strokes and actually look at things at a very micro level uh, when it comes to real estate. Um, so yeah, so thank you, Sean, for for mentioning that that local versus 
uh, national point because that's I think that's very very critical. Um, no, no problem. Now moving on, um, there have been some mortgage rule changes recently here in Canada as well. Can you take us through them just so that we're in the loop for anybody looking to buy a home, maybe renew their mortgage, anything like that? Sure. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that up, Cornell. So, uh, yeah, there, there's certainly the government uh, has been making a lot of changes in the real estate uh, and uh, mortgage uh, space over the last uh, several years, which uh, shouldn't come as a surprise if you've been following the news there. But, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just go through some of the more major changes out there. So prior to the whole COVID situation, the federal government had a plan to change the formula for the mortgage stress test. Uh, and yeah, basically what the change would have uh, done is that it would have made the qualifying rate for the stress test lower because I'm not part of the government myself, but just uh, from speaking with industry insiders and people in the industry and all that, my understanding uh, was that, and, and just from seeing the stress test myself, I guess just everyone all across the board just wasn't really happy with how the stress test was responding to what's actually happening in the market because one of the formulas used for the stress test is an average of the posted rates for the big five banks in Canada. And the thing is, the mortgage rates have been plummeting, but the uh, big banks haven't been cutting their posted rate um, because um, my feeling is that... uh, probably because it, that's how what they base their penal, mortgage penalties on fixed rate mortgages um, off of the posted rate there. So by cutting the rates, they're not really helping, like they're, they're reducing their profit potentially with uh, like uh, receiving a lesser amount for these penalties. So they weren't really cutting their posted rates. So basically it's like your co- mortgage rate plus 2% or the uh, benchmark rate. There's not supposed to be that much of a gap, but um at this time, like as an example, we're seeing mortgage rates like below 2% in some cases, but the stress test rate is actually at 4.79%. I mean, is that hard to believe, Cornell? Like there, you pretty much, in some cases, you have to qualify for a rate that's like almost 3% higher than your actual mortgage rate, which doesn't make a lot of sense in my uh, books, especially when it looks like mortgage rates are going to be staying low for the foreseeable future. I mean, I understand the stress test in the sense that the government wants you to be able to be able to handle future increases in rates. But when you're being stress tested at a rate that's like almost 3% higher, like doesn't make a lot of sense in my mind. And I, I think the government agrees and Everyone in the industry agrees as well. So they were, um, the federal government was going to tweak the stress test uh, formula of how it was calculated. But unfortunately, due to COVID, they put those uh, changes on hold. Uh, It looks like they're going to be revisiting them um, now that things have more normalized. But, you know, they haven't been changed as of yet. They they were supposed to be changed uh, back before the whole COVID situation. Uh, It it was supposed to take effect uh, April 6th, but uh, they just hit the pause button on that because of uh, COVID. But if it's hard to believe, we actually got more mortgage tightening rules uh, during the whole COVID situation. So CMHC, which is the biggest provider of mortgage insurance in Canada, there are two other private uh, mortgage insurance providers, Genworth, and uh, Canada guarantee, um, but CMHC does the line shares of, of insuring mortgages. And when I say insuring mortgages, I, I'm talking about like when you're putting less than 20% down on a property, you have to uh, buy mortgage default insurance. Uh, so that's what I'm referring to there. So CMHC, I guess, just kind of got some 
cold feet about the whole COVID situation. And it's, it's funny, the mortgage rules are supposed to be loosened, but they actually got tightened, uh, which is the complete opposite. But uh, basically, the debt ratios that are used to uh, qualify you for the mortgage, which basically, when you're qualifying for a mortgage, lenders don't want you to be spending more than a certain percentage of your household income on the expenses of, of the property. So uh, CMHC tightened those figures there. Uh, the GDS and TDS ratios, uh, don't don't want to confuse the listeners or go into a ton of detail. Feel free to reach out to me if you are interested in hearing more about this. But basically, the GDS and TDS ratios got tightened from a maximum of 39.44 to 35.42, which when you run the numbers, it makes it you know even more challenging to uh, qualify for a property, as well as the minimum credit score um, got increased uh, to 680 from 600, and uh, you're no longer allowed to have borrowed sources for down payment. Uh, when the industry saw that, it would you know, we definitely thought that was uh, overkill in terms of the rule changes. Uh, thankfully, like usually in the past, uh, Genworth and uh, Canada Guarantee would follow suit, but they just decided that CMHC's rule changes just didn't make sense and they were overkill, so they decided to not follow these uh, strict rules. So the good news is that uh, if you're somebody that would be potentially affected by these rule changes, there's still the other options of uh, Canada Guarantee and Genworth. So the bottom line is you shouldn't be affected by these rule changes. But uh, yeah, um, it it was just kind of perplexing seeing these these rule changes from CMHC and their CEO uh, is stepping down at the end of the year. But um, yeah, he he just doesn't... uh, I don't know. He just seems way too conservative in my book. I'm I'm not going to be sad to see him go, but uh, yeah, this was just kind of the icing on the cake with him. But uh, he's really been all about tightening mortgage rules, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Genworth and uh, Canada Guarantee didn't follow suit. Uh, these rules changes just seem like overkill, in, in my opinion. And now a quick break to tell you about some of the resources you may find helpful on our Build Wealth Canada site. Hey there, just want to give you a quick preview of a new free guide that I'm working on for you. It's actually a spreadsheet that I used in the past when buying properties for my own personal use as well as for when I was a landlord and was researching and screening investment properties. Essentially, it's the expenses, both immediate and ongoing, that you need to consider before buying a property, whether it's going to be your primary residence or a rental property. Back when I was a real estate investor, I literally read dozens of books on how to actually do it properly, as obviously when you're buying property, the stakes are high as you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so you really want to make sure that you didn't accidentally miss some expense that you weren't expecting that in turn actually makes your numbers not work, resulting in you actually having way more expenses than you were expecting. So this spreadsheet is actually the accumulation of all this knowledge from the dozens of best-selling real estate books that I've read and my own personal experience buying property both for personal use as well as for the purpose of a rental property. It is going to be a totally free tool for listeners of the show. So if you do want me to email it to you when it's ready, you can go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash expense tool, all one word. So buildwealthcanada.ca slash expense tool. And there you can put your email and when the tool is ready, I'll email it out to you and I'll give you access to edit it as well. So you can actually plug in your own numbers for your own properties that you're considering. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca 
ca slash expense tool all one word there's nothing to buy it's just a free tool that i personally used every time that i bought a property and it's just my way of saying thank you for listening to the show and if you like the show please leave a review on itunes as it definitely helps a lot or if you don't use itunes then you can rate it on whatever podcast player you like to use assuming it has that rating and review functionality so uh, that's it i hope you enjoy it i look forward to giving it to you and i'm releasing it soon so you know sign up if you do want to receive it and thanks again for tuning in and now back to the show it seems like almost every time you're on the show sean one of the questions is okay what are the new mortgage rule changes because there's always changes happening um so i I think that may be actually a good uh, time to just mention to all the listeners that sean is the resident mortgage expert here on the build with canada show and so if you ever do have a question like some you know he's just going over these mortgage rule changes which i totally agree uh, can sound complicating especially if you're new to all this and you know like they, they do these the government makes these changes at, at this sort of high level and then it's you know our responsibility as you know the canadian consumers to to understand them so uh sean is able to actually help you with that if you just heard something from him that you didn't quite understand um, definitely you can reach out to him um, Sean does do free consultations for Build Wealth Canada listeners uh, so if you go to uh, buildwealthcanada.ca slash Sean so just S-E-A-N uh, you can go there you can just enter your name and email and that will automatically get forwarded to Sean and then you guys can either you know, over email or set up a call and he can basically answer uh, answer your questions and, and you know clarify anything that is that, that has been covered on this show or maybe any other questions you have he is an actual licensed mortgage broker so if you you know do decide to use him you can definitely you know do that so that he can help you uh try to find the lowest rate and the best terms on your mortgage uh but definitely yeah sean uh, thanks again for basically agreeing to it, it you know to take the questions of listeners of the show because I'm, I'm more of an investing guy you know you're the mortgage expert and it can be pretty complicated like we just <laughs> like we just talked about because the rules do seem to always be changing and you don't want to make these plans according to some outdated mortgage rules and then you go to you know buy a home and then all of a sudden you can't get financing because you know you were using outdated information so um yeah so it's buildwealthcanada.ca slash sean for anybody that wants to uh you know talk to sean for free so yeah sean thanks again for for offering that i thought it was a good time to bring it up because yeah some of these rules changes sound complicated sometimes for sure yeah definitely i remember back when i was buying a property there was <laughs> big surprise there were big rule changes back in 2012 i mean it seems like every year there's always big rule changes but uh yeah i mean my parents are like oh are you sure that you should be buying a prop uh, a property so i called up my mortgage broker and he just explained how the rule changes didn't really impact me but just kind of seeing the news releases like you know it made my parents think oh you know maybe you shouldn't move forward with the purchase uh, so i just find knowledge is power so if you see some rule changes or like read some um, news in the media and you're not sure to how to interpret it, I would definitely uh, reach out to an expert like myself, more than happy to kind of walk you through it and let you know, you know, whether that impacts you or not. Because yeah, it definitely seems like there's not a year that goes by without uh, any of these uh, changes out here uh, that happen. So uh, yeah, I just want to go over a couple more changes quickly, if that would be all right sure. for now. Yeah, so um, in terms of uh, changes, uh, so the mortgage stress test, uh, the good news, I mean, certainly COVID isn't good news. I wish that never happened. But uh, one, I guess, if you can call it good news, one piece of good news is that mortgage rates have come down to record low levels. And um, as I mentioned, the stress test formula hasn't changed as of yet, but the big banks have been cutting their posted rates. So the qualifying rate is only 4.79%, which it used to be at the beginning of the 
whole uh, COVID situation uh, back in March, it was 5.19%. So it has come down to 4.79%. And that means you can uh, qualify to spend about, with the latest uh, cut in the stress test that boosts your home buying power by a whole 1.5%, uh, uh, which isn't a huge amount, but at least it's heading in the right direction there. Uh, but yeah, I definitely would like to see the changes in the stress test formula because I think qualifying a rate of 4.79% is, is too high in my opinion. It doesn't make sense when mortgage rates are available uh, you know, below 2%. It just doesn't make a lot of sense in my uh, book. And just a couple last quick uh, changes here. So um, I'm sure as most of the listeners have heard, uh, the finance minister, Bill Morneau, uh, stepped back from his uh, role, a role that he held since uh, November 4th, 2015. And he introduced a lot of changes in his time in office, um, mostly mortgage tightening uh, changes. But he basically, when he was in office, uh, the stress test was introduced. Um, the minimum down payment was uh, increased uh, from uh, 5% to 10% on uh, like basically, you used to be able to only make five percent down payment um, on a home, but uh, that they have that whole uh, th- tiered system now, where it's five percent on the first five hundred thousand, and then between five hundred thousand and nine ninety nine, um, you uh, have to make a ten percent down payment, and then it's twenty percent down payment on purchases over a million. That uh, rule was put into place when Bill Morneau was in office. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, the, the list goes on. Like the first time home buyer incentive, that was also introduced by him. Uh, but yeah, he decided to step back um, from his role. And now uh, Christia Freeland is now the new finance minister. Um, I mean, she, you know, political views aside, I mean, she seems like uh, somebody that has her ear to the ground and seems like, uh, you know, someone who's pretty competent. So it'll be interesting to see how she handles that role and, Bill Morneau, I guess, was all about tightening the rules, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what rule changes are brought in um, when she's finance minister. I mean, I think their focus is going to be the COVID situation and helping the Canadian economy recover from that. But, uh, you know, once things stabilize with that, uh, it'll be interesting to see how she kind of handles, like, mortgage rules and all that. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm caution, cautiously optimistic about that situation and uh you know interested to see how that is all going to play out awesome yeah well th- thanks for that update i mean yeah there's always uh something and it can be pretty pretty complex but yeah these actually sound like some pretty significant changes right it's not every day you get a you get a new finance minister so yeah that, that's going to be interesting to see how things unfold and the different policies that are going to be put in place especially now you know with covid and then what we know now it's going to be some interesting times that's for sure so l- let's move on then and talk about something that we can do that is within our control to maximize the chances of getting approved for a mortgage and getting the best terms and rate. You've been on the show multiple times, but I don't think we've actually ever covered this specifically. So, you know, what can we do to basically maximize our chances of getting approved and getting the best possible rate? Great. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up, uh, Cornell. Definitely, you want to do everything that you can to set yourself up uh, for success, working with a competent Mortgage professional um, certainly helps you, but uh, there are things that you can do to prepare ahead of time to improve your chances even more. So I would say, you know, first of all, you know, speak with a mortgage professional, 
discuss your plans for real estate, get pre-approved, which basically means running the numbers to make sure that you can qualify to spend the amount that you want to on a property. And, you know, you don't want to just be shopping for properties and not knowing if you can actually qualify to spend that amount. I remember when I was looking at properties back in 2012, I was surprised how much I qualified for, but people these days are, they often expect to qualify for more than they actually do just because of the stress test rule that was put into place. So definitely to avoid any surprises, I would recommend uh, speaking to a mortgage professional and yeah, definitely I would say whether you're shopping for a home or your mortgage is coming up for renewal, reach out at least three or four months in advance. Uh, that's a good time frame in terms of when the mortgage broker or professional can uh, actually discuss options with you and uh, secure a, a rate for you within that time window. Most lenders, between 90 and 120 days, you're able to secure a rate. And yeah, so it definitely makes sense to reach out in that time frame there. For people who are buying properties, it, the sooner you reach out to a mortgage professional, the better, because you don't want to make an offer on a property and then find out that you have credit issues later on. Uh, I ran into a client recently where he was perfectly fine, but he wasn't impacted by COVID or anything like that. But when he bought a property and uh, the credit report was pulled, it showed that one of his credit card payments was in deferral status. It wasn't the case, so he had to kind of scramble and get that situation resolved. So just avoid a situation like that. It's good to have a mortgage professional pull your credit in advance just to make sure that everything is 100% accurate because it's only as accurate as it was reported by the various lenders on there. So definitely have you know a mortgage professional review your credit ahead of time rather than when you make an offer on a property because then you can avoid a situation like that. Also, in, in terms of your deposit, especially for first-time home buyers, it's a good idea to have your deposit money ready to make a deposit on a property. I've, I've, I've had situations and heard of people who, you know, they make an offer on a property and it's accepted and then you need to make your deposit within 24 hours usually. Well, the money's sitting in like a high interest savings account or an investment account, and it's going to take like three business days to get the money out. And, you know, you're expected to have the deposit ready in 24 hours. So I know you can earn extra interest by having uh, the money somewhere else usually. But if you're going to be making an offer on a property, it's a good idea to know how much the deposit is going to be and have that money sitting in an account like your checking account where you can easily access it because, yes, yeah, it's just not good to run in that situation. You wouldn't want to lose out on your dream home because you don't have that deposit money sitting in your checking account. So definitely have that ready. And Lenders are, in terms of uh, the next topic, in terms of the uh, down payment, lenders typically want to see like a 90-day history of your down payment money just to make sure that it's been sitting in your account for that period of time. Uh, it's just for anti-money laundering legislation. You know, I'm sure everyone, the listeners are all honest. I'm honest as well. You're honest as well, Cornell. But unfortunately, you know, there are a few people out there that aren't. So, the rules are, uh, you know, that's the way the rules are across the board. You need to provide a 90-day history for your down payment uh, documents. So uh, what I would just, just a, a piece of advice, mortgage professional can help you present the down payment documents to the lender. But uh, if you're going to be making a down payment on a property, uh, I would just say it's, it's easier if you don't transfer your money around to 10 different accounts because you'll need to provide the account history for all 10 of those accounts. If you're planning to use the money for down payment, I would just try to keep it in one account and not move it around into 
various different accounts uh, because, you know, certainly the mortgage professional, it, it's fine either way. But, you know, if you just want to keep the process as simple as possible and not provide a ton of of documents for uh, for your down payment, it's just easier if you keep it in one account. So um, that's one piece of advice there. And uh, just a, a couple last uh, pieces of advice here. Um, it's just a good idea not to have any major changes in the middle of your mortgage application. So don't quit your job. Don't close credit cards that have been open for a long period of time and in good standing because uh, credit history length is an important factor in your credit score. Uh, If you've just had one credit card open for all these years and then you decide to close it, you could run into an issue of having thin credit, a lack of credit history. So, you know, if you have a credit accounts in in good standing, don't close it um, as well as, uh, you know, don't take any on and any major debts, like don't take out a car loan or a car lease or charge a ton of money on your credit card without speaking to a mortgage professional, because like that could affect how much you uh, qualify to spend on a property and you may no longer qualify to spend as much as you uh, want to. And finally, uh, make sure that you budget for closing costs. Most lenders want to see proof that you have at least 1.5% of the purchase price in liquid savings uh, in order to cover the closing costs. So um, just remember that you need to hold back money from your deposit and down payment to cover uh, closing costs. So um, yeah, those are kind of my rapid fire tips there. And I certainly think if you follow all those rules there, you can definitely set yourself up for success and help the process go a lot smoother. What was that percentage again, Sean, that you mentioned as a percentage of the house cost for the Yes, so so sometimes your closing costs can be more than this, but uh, mortgage lenders typically want to see 1.5% of the purchase price in savings in order to cover the closing costs. Okay, gotcha. And the closing costs are things like land transfer tax, real estate lawyer fees, home inspection, the list goes on and on. Your closing costs may be less or more, but the lenders want to see that you have at least 1.5% in savings. Right. They want to make sure that once the deal actually closes and it's time to pay for all these, or even before it closes, that you're not all of a sudden, you ran out of money to pay for all the fees that actually are required to handle the transaction, like the lawyer fees and, and, and the land transfer taxes and all of that. Or that even, I guess, after your house, you move into your house, that you've actually still got some money as opposed to, uh, you know, at that point, you might have trouble paying the mortgage now because you've just spent all your money on this new house. I don't know. I'm guessing that probably makes them a bit nervous too, right? So they, they want to see that extra cushion probably, right? Exactly. And you mentioned the credit score and the importance of that, both in terms of just managing it and also that story with one of the, I guess, clients you had where they found something unexpected on their credit report. And that can basically cause massive issues in terms of getting approvals and things like that. So yeah, yeah, you definitely don't want to be dealing with that kind of stuff right before you're about to buy a house, right? Because that can really delay things. And especially when the market is heated, you could actually miss out on a house that you want because you're getting all tied up with the financing details. Whereas there's another buyer that basically has all that figured out because they've actually been managing you know, their credit score and all these other components you mentioned uh, properly. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I know the um, the tool that I use to manage my credit score, I mean, I'm not even, you know, we're happy where we live with our house. We're not planning on moving or anything like that, but it's still, important to manage your credit score just you know for these errors alone right just to make to catch them if they do happen and also in the case of fraud right if there's identity theft someone could be really destroying your credit score without you knowing it so um there is a free tool that i use uh, i made a link to it from a past episode and it still works it's uh build wealth canada 
buildwealthcanada.ca slash score. So just like credit score. So buildwealthcanada.ca slash score. And that would automatically take you there to basically the tool that I'm currently using. And you can go there, you can sign up for free. Uh, and you can basically use that to check your credit score for free and then get updates when there's you know an increase to your credit score, a decrease, just so that you can monitor it closely, you know, at least I would say once every six months, take a look at it just to make sure that there's no suspicious activity on there. Make sure that it's actually trending in the correct direction and make sure that it's accurate where there isn't something on there that, you know, like like you mentioned, the credit card where they, they actually canceled it, uh, but it's actually still showing up there and it's actually causing problems for you. So um, so that, that, that's great, Sean. Thank you for uh, for mentioning that. So uh, moving on a little bit with these record low interest rates that we've been seeing, I think many Canadians that are currently in a fixed rate mortgage are wondering, is it worth maybe breaking their existing mortgage, paying the cancellation fees, and then getting a new mortgage at the lower rate? So can you talk about the analysis that we should be going through to actually mathematically figure this out? Because it is, at the end of the day, a math question, right, in terms of whether you should do this or not. Yeah, definitely. Uh, For a lot of people, it is a math question. But for other people, perhaps their finances have been affected by COVID and uh, they're looking at paying a lower mortgage payment. So for a lot of people, it's an interest savings uh, question. But for some people, they just want to be paying a lower overall mortgage uh, payment. Perhaps they have, you know, they have had to change in their life. They have a new child or or something along the lines of that. So um, yeah, their cash flow is definitely a consideration as well. But I would say like for a lot of people, it is a uh, interest savings uh, question that they're looking at. So for a lot of people who want to break their mortgage, they're in like, uh, typically they're in a fixed rate mortgage for them, you know, maybe they locked into a mortgage uh, rate that is above 3% and they're seeing mortgage rates like, you know, around low 2% or even below that. and, And they're thinking, you know, I don't really want to be in this 3% mortgage rate, especially when I'm seeing mortgage rates as low as they are. So um, yeah, it it is a numbers uh, exercise out there for a lot of people. So um, what I would recommend uh, doing is uh, speaking with a mortgage professional, having them crunch the numbers. Basically, it's a cost benefit analysis exercise where you look at the cost of breaking your mortgage, which is basically the main cost of that is the mortgage penalty versus the interest savings you would have over that time period. And depending on the lender, the mortgage balance size, the mortgage rate, uh, it can make sense or it might not make sense in some instances. Like if you're with one of the big banks, their penalties can be quite hefty because of the posted rate that they use, but it can still make sense in those instances. So it's really a case-by-case basis. You need to run the numbers. Um, So I would recommend speaking with a mortgage professional, having them run the numbers and uh, they can lay out the cost of it, the penalty versus uh, the interest savings over that time period. And then, you know, lay it out uh, clearly in front of you. And then you can make the decision whether or not to move forward. Uh, I find the easiest way to get that information in terms of the penalty, because it's not so easy to, you can't just go on your lender's website and easily get that information in terms of the penalty. It You often have to call them and it's uh, the penalty is changing sometime because it's based on their posted rates. So I would just say the simplest way to get that information from your current lender is to just send them an email and, and just ask them in the email, say, you know, hello, if I were to sell my home tomorrow, what would my mortgage penalty be? Now, your intention isn't to sell your property, but by asking them that question, you'll more than likely get the information that you need from them. So I would just rather than call them and have it like, you know, have them pitch you and, and try to sign up for credit cards and other products that you don't need, I would just send them that that short and sweet 
email right there and just ask them what the mortgage penalty would be and uh, that way you have that information and then you can call up the mortgage professional, look into some options and uh, that way you have that penalty figure and uh, they can run the numbers and show you how much interest you'll be saving and then you can decide whether or not to move forward. So yeah, for a lot of Canadians, it is interest savings. For some people, it is cash flow. But I would just say if you're thinking of breaking your mortgage, definitely speak to a professional because they can make sense of it for you. But for the average Canadian, it can be a bit confusing. So definitely speak to an expert if you're thinking about doing it and uh, they can provide you with the numbers that you need to decide whether or not you want to move forward with uh, breaking your mortgage. But yeah, I would definitely say if you have a mortgage rate above 3% or in the two in the high 2%, uh, definitely reach out to a mortgage professional and, and they can run the numbers to see if it would make sense to uh, break or, or not. Awesome, Sean. And just um, to clarify too, to do that, if somebody wants you let's say to do that math for them to see if it's worth it or not is that something you can do for free to build with Canada listeners as part of the free consultation uh, that we you have with us or yeah can you talk about that yeah definitely there is no cost like uh, as in terms of being a, a mortgage broker uh, my services are completely free to you um, like basically how it works is that uh, like as a mortgage broker it's similar to a real estate agent uh, when you buy a property they're paid like a percentage of the selling uh, price of the property so uh, or, or the buying price of the property uh, same thing with being a mortgage broker you don't have to write me a check for my services or anything like that uh, it's basically uh, receive a finder's fee from the lenders. Generally speaking, uh, the lenders uh, across the board all offer similar finder's fees, so there's no incentive to go with one lender or the other. I'm more looking to present the options that make the most sense uh, that uh, my clients will be most happy with at the end of the day, so they'll want to work with me in the future and uh, hopefully introduce their friends and family to me. So yeah, there's absolutely no cost uh, for my services. So, you know, if you're interested in running this cost benefit analysis and seeing if it makes sense to uh, break your mortgage, certainly feel free to reach out and I'd be happy to run those numbers for free for you. And uh, then you can decide whether or not you want to move forward after uh, hearing the numbers. Gotcha. So I guess the process is one, they would uh, sign up to speak to you for like a free consult. If somebody is considering uh, maybe breaking their mortgage and getting a less expensive one, uh, and then they would provide you, you'd ask them the right questions to make sure you have all the numbers to do the actual math. Then you would crunch those numbers and then you'd tell them like, yes, it's worth it. No, it's not. Whatever the case is. And then that doesn't cost them anything. And then if they, if the listener would like to uh, see let's say it does make sense to actually switch to to a more switch mortgages and break the existing one then you'd basically say here's the, like the lowest ones i've been able to find and then if they choose to go with one of those then they can but they're not obligated to go with you or anything like that either right exactly that that's perfect uh the way you described it and you know if by emailing me i can you don't have to type exactly what I was saying here uh, in the uh, podcast interview. I can literally send you the wording to ask your current lender about what the penalty would be. Uh, and uh, nice. yeah, you can literally copy and paste that and send it to them in an email. So I like to make the process as simple as possible for you. So that's certainly awesome. feel free to reach out if, if that's uh, yeah. if, if you're thinking about breaking your mortgage. Okay, that's great. Yeah, so um, just to give you that link again, if anybody is interested in that, it's Build Wealth Canada. 
ca slash sean so s-e-a-n and then there will just forward you to a page where you can enter your name and email you'll see sean's name there and you'll see the build with canada site there and yeah so then sean will get that email automatically uh i'll make sure he you know he gets it as well and then yeah and then you guys can uh, basically you know sean could email you that script that you can basically copy and paste into an email to send your lender to get and then you guys can you know speak together uh, you know to figure out whether it actually makes sense for you to break your mortgage so thanks again uh, for coming on and uh yeah i mean i look forward to having you here next time and thanks again for being our you know resident uh, mortgage expert here so that listeners of the show can ask you their mortgage questions and you know get the free consultation and all of that so uh, yeah thanks again for coming on and, and see you next time my pleasure it's always great to help out your listeners and help educate them about the mortgage and home buying process so uh, looking forward to being on again soon and hearing from your listeners as well and helping them with their mortgages awesome yeah and, and for everybody listening uh, let me know if you like these kinds of interviews usually when I do interviews you know we talk about sort of these uh, concepts which you know aren't really that time sensitive right you can apply these certain best practices like in investing in real estate you know pretty much for forever you know but sometimes i think it's good to talk about things that are more timely like we've got covid going on right now we've got you know mortgage rule changes right which are more time sensitive so you know i I thought maybe it'd be a good idea to have sean on when we have these changes in the market just so that we can be well aware of them whether we already own a home or maybe we're considering and buying a home so yeah let me know if you like this kind of format if you hate this kind of format you know this is ultimately you know to give you guys a, a lot of benefits so uh, definitely let me know uh, you know what you like what you don't like and I'll try to tweak the show accordingly uh, based on that so uh, you know with that said Sean thanks again and I'll uh, see you next time okay thanks very much Cornell all right take care bye all right I hope you enjoyed the episode this month remember that you can speak to Sean for free to get your questions answered by going to build wealth Canada dot ca slash Sean that's build wealth Canada dot ca slash Sean that's s e A-M. And a big thanks to RBC Small Business Division for sponsoring this episode. One of their leaders, Lori Darlington, was actually on the show last month sharing some really valuable free resources for small business owners in Canada. And the interest and responses from the listeners were actually so positive that they decided to sponsor this episode. So thank you very much for that. And I encourage you to check them out if you are a small business owner or if you're considering starting a business on the side. You don't have to be an actual RBC business client to access these free resources and they have actually partnered with other companies that help small businesses and arrange discounts with them so definitely worth checking out as there were definitely certain services that I was looking to outsource in my own personal business and that list from them was actually really helpful especially since they had discounts for some of the companies that I was considering using so if you want to access the free resources hub for Canadian small businesses you can go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash hub that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash hub just h you be. And if you want to see some of these deals and discounts that they've arranged with other companies that serve small businesses, then just go to buildbothcanada.ca slash hub and click on the link that says offers and services beyond banking. And that will take you there. So thank you again to RBC Small Business Division for not only supporting the show, but also helping out Canadian small business owners like myself in terms of bringing all these deals and resources together in one central hub. And last but not least, if you do want the free tool that I'm building that will show all the expenses, both immediate and ongoing, that you need to consider before buying a property, whether it's going to be your primary residence or a rental property, then you can go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash expense tool, all one word, 
put in your email and I'll send it over to you for free as soon as it's done. And it's actually a spreadsheet that I used in the past when buying properties for my own personal use, as well as for when I was a landlord and was researching and screening investment properties. And it's literally based on dozens of the top best-selling real estate books that I read over the years, plus my own personal experience as a homeowner and a rental property owner. And it's totally free. And just as a thank you for tuning into the show. And if you do like the show, all I ask is that you leave a positive review on iTunes, or if you don't use iTunes on whatever podcast player you are using. So that's all for today. Have a great and safe week and talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.